this week, Rite Aid and Albertsons part ways, Toys R Us files two plans, Pacific Drilling ordered to return to mediation. We're on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distress, debt, and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, our Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, sits down with senior reporter Chelsea Frankel to discuss the latest on Intelsat, including both the operational and capital structure changes the satellite operator is making. It's Sunday, August 12th. A midweek bombshell dropped from Albertsons and Rite Aid as the two companies mutually agreed to terminate their merger agreement. Rite Aid CEO John Stanley said that while he believed in the merits of the combination, the company had, quote, heard the views expressed by our stockholders and was committed to moving ahead as a standalone company. Albertsons noted, quote, after careful consideration of all information available to our board of directors through today, we were unwilling to change the terms of the merger. Leading up to the transaction, Rite Aid used proceeds from its almost 2,000 store sale to Walgreens to redeem debt. The company has received $4.2 billion to date and expects to receive an additional $220 million beginning in September. Earlier in the week, Rite Aid lowered its full-year EBITDA guidance. Rite Aid's pro forma leverage increases to 5.3 times when incorporating the future proceeds and reduced guidance. The Toys R Us debtors had a busy week. Last weekend, the Taj debtors filed their plan disclosure statement and bidding procedures. The Taj plan disclosed that the ad hoc group of Taj note holders had been selected as stocking horse bidder for the company's almost 85% interest in the Toys Asia joint venture. While the Taj note holder group's $750 million stocking horse bid does not include a bid for the Asia-related IP leased to Taj by Jeffrey LLC, the bidding procedures contemplate the debtors receiving bids for both the equity interest in the JV and the related IP. The remaining 15% interest in the Asia JV is owned by Fung, a China-based retailing arm of Fung Group. In conjunction with their proposed bidding procedures, the debtors are seeking certain findings from the court regarding the Fung minority interest, including that a right of first refusal provision in the shareholders' agreement is invalid and unenforceable because it restricts assignment of the debtor's indirect interest in the Asia JV. Separately, on Monday evening, the Toys Delaware and Jeffrey debtors filed their own Chapter 11 plan and disclosure statement. And on Tuesday, Judge Keith Phillips approved the Toys debtors' North American settlement motion over the objections of the U.S. trustee and LSC Communications after nearly five hours of testimony. Parties to the settlement agreement include the North American debtors, the Ad Hoc Vendor Group, the Ad Hoc Group of B4 Lenders, and the Unsecured Creditors Committee. At a hearing on Thursday, Judge Michael Wiles ordered the Pacific Drilling debtors to return to mediation, telling the debtors that pursuing two plans of reorganization on a parallel track would be the, quote, absolute worst path forward. The judge denied the motion of Quantum Pacific, the debtor's equity holder, to modify the debtor's exclusivity period, which had been requested so that Quantum Pacific could prosecute its own competing plan alongside the ad hoc group's plan. The judge also denied Quantum Pacific's request for reimbursement of its fees and expenses. 
Prior to the hearing, a number of case parties had objected to Quantum Pacific's motion to modify the debtor's exclusivity. In particular, the ad hoc group of debt holders alleged in an objection that the debtor's Chapter 11 cases were being, quote, held hostage by Quantum Pacific's fee request because the debtor's board was not willing to authorize the cases to proceed without payment of the fees. A number of creditors also asserted that Quantum Pacific's competing plan would not have an impaired consenting class. At Thursday's hearing, counsel for the debtors also noted that the debtors would be filing a motion requesting approval of $85 million in dip financing. In a week of big news in Puerto Rico, the biggest was Wednesday's announcement from the Promesa Oversight Board in the Commonwealth that had reached a deal with Cofina bondholders and monoline insurers on the terms of a proposed plan of adjustment for Cofina. Under the terms of the agreement, Cofina's debt will be reduced by about one-third, resulting in $17.5 billion of future debt service payments and terms and conditions are provided for debt restructuring. The plan establishes an initial recovery for Cofina senior bondholders of 93%. Cofina subordinate bondholders would be in line for initial recovery of 56.4%. In a statement issued on Thursday, Assured Guarantee said, quote, implied recoveries, including fees for parties to the RSA, will be in the mid 90% range for the senior bonds and approach 60% for the subordinate bonds. Several issuances of Puerto Rico's COFINA and general obligations bonds traded up Thursday following the announcement. Also on Wednesday, the First Circuit issued two important opinions. First, the court vacated Judge Laura Taylor Swain's September 14th opinion and order denying the stay relief motion by the ad hoc group of PREPA bondholders and several bond insurers, finding that sections 305 and 306 of PROMESA did not preclude the district court from granting the movement's request. The First Circuit made clear, however, that whether Judge Swain should ultimately grant the relief requested is a matter that should be left to the district court on remand. Second, the court issued an opinion in the Piaje Investments Appeal, concluding, among other things, that Piaje does not hold a statutory lien. The First Circuit also found that Judge Swain did not abuse her discretion in, quote, limiting Piaje to its argument that it holds a statutory lien on certain toll revenues of the authority, and vacated Judge Swain's alternative reasons for denying Piaje's requested relief, remanding them back for further proceedings based on the First Circuit's conclusion that Piaje has no statutory lien. For her part, Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Tuesday issued her ruling granting in part and denying in part the Oversight Board's motion to dismiss the adversary proceeding filed by Governor Ricardo Rosseo and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AFAF, regarding authority of the Oversight Board in connection with its certified fiscal plan and budget. The court dismissed several of the Rosseo administration's claims, including those related to the Oversight Board's measures on proposed agency consolidation and reduction of employee benefits, such as the Christmas bonus. However, the opinion also declined to dismiss the plaintiff's claims with respect to challenge provisions relating to automatic budget reductions and corrective measures, as well as the request for injunctive relief. The opinion is also notable because it addresses the scope of the Oversight Board's authority, the recommendation process under PROMESA, and the scope of the limitations on jurisdiction under PROMESA Section 106E. 
Separately, Judge Swain issued an opinion granting the Oversights Board motion to dismiss the lawsuit by the Puerto Rico Legislative Assembly, thereby dismissing the complaint in its entirety. The plaintiffs representing members of the Puerto Rico Legislature sought by the lawsuit to prohibit the Oversight Board from implementing the certified budget for fiscal 2019. In her opinion, Judge Swain concluded, among other things, that the court lacked subject matter jurisdiction over certain requested relief because there was no actual case or controversy as required under the U.S. Constitution. Concerning the other relief sought, Judge Swain explained that the court lacked jurisdiction over the legislature's, quote, requests for relief that directly implicate the Oversight Board's certification decisions, relying on Section 106E of PROMESA. In dismissing the plaintiff's usurpation claim and the related request for injunctive relief, Judge Swain concluded, quote, Both plaintiffs' legal proposition and their request for injunctive relief are contrary to express provisions of PROMESA and thus fail to state claims upon which relief may be granted. In Venezuela, with two months until PETAVASA's highly anticipated $840 million amortization payment due on its 8.5% senior secured 2020 bonds, Judge Stark of the District of Delaware granted Canadian miner Crystalex's order for a writ of attachment over PDV Holding Inc. The parties must submit a joint status report by August 16th. The writ will not be issued until Judge Stark reviews the joint status report. Crystalex's order is related to the Petavesa Senior Secured Amortization because the 8.5% senior secureds are collateralized by a first lien over the capital stock of CITGO Holding, which is owned by PDV Holding. The Petavesa Secured Bond has traded up around 4 to 5 points over the past month in part because of an Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, executive order facilitating the 2020 bondholders' enforcement over the CITGO collateral. A creditors' committee represented by Milstein & Company said that it is exploring options to ensure that assets available outside of Venezuela belonging to the Bolivarian Republic, Pedavesa and Electricidad de Caracas, or LACAR, are, quote, available to satisfy claims of all creditors. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, mattress firm engages Sidley Austin as retailer considers new funding, restructuring, or turnaround options. Number two, new bankruptcy case summary for RM Holdco. Operator of El Torito, Chevy's Fresh Mex, and Acapulco files Chapter 11 to run 363 sale. And number three, in Paragon Offshore, Judge Sanchi grants in part and denies in part motion to arbitrate Paragon Noble claims. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Okay, thank you, Karen, and greetings, listeners. Here we are entering the dog days of August, also known as hurricane season on the Gulf of Mexico. Pace of earnings is somewhat attenuated, much to the relief of many, but there's enough to keep us busy. Before I start, let me just remind everyone to check out our weekly calendar, published every Monday at 6.15 a.m. ET. And on this Monday, August 13th, a KERP hearing in First Energy and a bidding procedures objection deadline for Gibson Brands. 
They're selling property on Church Street in Nashville, which I believe is a warehouse. Probably get turned into a Chuck E. Cheese or maybe a Steak and Shake. Who knows? And in case you're wondering, the guitars from the Les Paul and the SG through the Firebird are built in a facility on Massman Avenue in Nashville. And also on Monday, we have earnings from Vanguard and Sun Edison and also from Tidewater. Tuesday, August 14th, what do we have? A plan confirmation, DS approval hearing for Appvion, and a sale hearing for Relativity Media, along with earnings from Chaparral Energy. Wednesday, August 15th, we have the plan objection response and confirmation brief deadline for Toys Prop Co. 2, and it's tap on the shoulder time for PetraQuest, with a cash coupon due on its 10% second lien notes. Bondholders, and there's a couple of chunky ones, are working with Houlihan Loki. The company has some interesting assets, including some Austin chalk over in Louisiana. On Thursday, August 16th, there's a settlement hearing in Rex Energy and a confirmation hearing in Synvio. And J.C. Penney, coming to you live from Plano, Texas, in the heart of the Dallas-Fort Worth megalopolis, has its second quarter earnings and a conference call. Friday, August 17th, we have an organization hearing in iHeart and an exclusivity extension hearing for Claire Stores. And that looks to be it. Karen, back to you. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Mark Fisher sat down with senior reporter Chelsea Frankel to discuss the latest on Intelsat. Handing it to you, Mark. Thanks, Karen. So I'm here today with senior reporter Chelsea Frankel, uh, who among the many names that she covers will be talking to us today about Intelsat. Intelsat, uh, I think Chelsea is one of the names that you've been covering for the longest. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's surprising. Over the years, you look at the company's $15 billion of debt, it's really felt like a roller coaster following this situation. Um, and it's really hard to believe that these senior notes that were in the 60s just a couple of years ago are now indicated above par. Uh, so we wanted to talk today about uh, you know how we got here. And, and really recently, um, these events have unfolded starting um, late last year uh, with the FCC and a, a proposal that Intelsat made. So, you know, why don't you tell everybody about that? Yeah, so um, speaking to the roller coaster, uh, Intelsat definitely, we followed them through their Aurelius dispute um, when they were trying to do refinancing a couple years ago um, through the SoftBank OneWeb uh, negotiations that ended up falling through. And it's been a really different uh, time for Intelsat since the Spectrum proposal. Um, so I guess starting off there, in October 2017, Intel and Intelsat submitted a C-band Spectrum sharing proposal in a joint comment to the FCC. And this was in response to the FCC's notice of inquiry requesting industry feedback on how additional Spectrum opportunities could be made available for use in a terrestrial mobile setting for like 5G. Um, because sharing in the same frequency by both mobile and satellite services can result in impairment of satellite signals, the FCC indicated it was looking for other solutions that could allow the midband to be cleared to support mobile services. So the proposal basically contemplates making available 100 megahertz of the 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz C-band spectrum for terrestrial mobile 5G services, uh, though Intelsat CFO Jacques Caress said at an October 2017 Deutsche Bank conference that 100 megahertz is just an indication and that it was too early to know uh, precise spectrum needs. 
and certain FCC commissioners have since indicated that they don't think 100 megahertz is enough. And Crest also said at that conference that the satellite industry has about 500 megahertz of spectrum, um, and that the FCC has also said in its notice of proposed rulemaking that Intelsat and SES combined have the vast majority of U.S. licensed satellites uh, serving the mid-band. So what is the proposal? Uh, It's in line with prior indications from the FCC that they would like to see a market-based approach. The proposal contemplates providing market-based incentives for fixed satellite service incumbents to take on costs to clear portions of the band. portions of the C-band downlink spectrum in certain parts of the country to allow for terrestrial use, as noted. Um, Intelsat also noted early on that the spectrum clearing would occur at a significant cost to incumbent satellite operators in the identified spectrum and geographic areas. And this has also been something noted by commissioners. Thanks, Chelsea. A uh, couple of things that I'd, a- that I'd add is SES, also a part of the consortium, uh, which is very important to it because together, Intelsat and SES control 90 to 95 percent of C-band service revenue in North America. Utilsat, uh, who also is now uh, part of the consortium, did take its time to, to think about it. Earlier in the year, they were asked uh, on the conference call uh, if they uh, were, were looking into it, if they wanted to participate. Um, Utilsat's CEO did say yes, uh, they were looking at it, but um, the fact is, quote, that we should be prudent. Uh, again, quote, it's a very complicated process. Uh, and a process which is going to take quite a long time, uh, even though it is, it does look uh, to be exciting. Um, but they did come around um, at the time, the day of uh, the um, the FCC hearing. So, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about that um, that July hearing, Chelsea. The FCC's chairman uh, said in June that he would be holding a vote on a notice of proposed rulemaking, and the FCC commissioners ended up unanimously voting in favor of that proposed rulemaking at an open meeting on July 12th. Um, and as Mark noted. Uh, UTELSAT has since joined the consortium since their earlier comments, um, and they actually joined the morning of the open meeting. Um, So at the meeting, Commissioners Michael O'Reilly and Brendan Carr spoke in support of the market-based approach concept and emphasized the need to release more than 100 megahertz available for Uh, licensed terrestrial services via privately negotiated agreements um, between the satellite proposal consortium members and the prospective terrestrial licensees. The FCC's NPRM notes that Intel maintains that if demand for terrestrial mobile spectrum is as robust as commonly believed by 5G supporters, the market-based approach could clear additional spectrum beyond the 100 megahertz proposed um, in the proposal. Intel, Intelsat, and SES claim that their consortium approach would result in licensed mobile services within 18 to 36 months of a commission order, and commissioners highlighted at the meeting that a significant benefit of a market-based approach may be a more rapid introduction of C-band spectrum to the market. Commissioner O'Reilly outlined three principles that he thinks should be, quote, acknowledged and respected in any proposal. First is the allocation of spectrum needs. Uh, That needs to happen quickly. Reallocation must release a sufficient amount of spectrum, and any reallocation must protect contracts that are currently in use. Um, 
So that would uh, allow to protect those customers. Commissioner Rosenmorsel emphasized the last point, saying frequencies are currently being used by TV and radio broadcasters and that those contracts will need to be addressed through any solution. She also focused on the U.S. being behind globally in making Spectrum available for 5G use and called the Intelsat Consortium proposal creative. After that meeting, the rulemaking essentially authorizes the FCC to continue its efforts to make mid-band spectrum available for flexible use and also to aggregate info from fixed satellite service, earth stations, and space stations to give the commission a clear understanding of current user operations. So it's like a little brief summary of the meeting if you want to get into the cap structure. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really interesting. You can see, you know, how people are excited. Um, you know, clearly uh, people are looking at this and and see it as a way to capitalize on on the company's vast spectrum that they have and and finally a process in, is in place. So, it's definitely very exciting. And what's interesting is you you look at since what the company has done with their capital structure, since uh, this this was announced and this process started, they've actually had a lot of success um, moving, pushing out uh, maturities and, and uh, raising new capital to address uh, more junior security. So I'll just sort of run through um, what they've done and you can see the progression. So beginning in, in November, um, Intelsat Jackson, which is the um, the entity, the most senior entity that's closest to the operations, uh, where, where the senior debt, both unsecured and secured, um, lie, they, uh, they they did an amendment uh, with their lenders that allowed them to push out uh, uh, maturities, which they completed um, the beginning of, um, of of this year. Essentially, they uh, pushed out. Uh, over three billion in term loans that were originally maturing in 2019 to now maturing in 2023 and uh, 2024 with a slightly higher uh, coupon. The company then was able to redeem 2018 notes, uh, notes that were maturing this year, a small number, less than 100 million, but these notes uh, were at a, a junior entity uh, with the what Intelsat calls Intelsat uh, Luxembourg, or as uh, you know, P, uh, the common name Intelsat Lux. Um, and then, uh, and this was really interesting, the company was able to use, uh, which was now um, a much higher stock price. Um, the stock price when all this was going on was a little less than $5 um, in uh, September, October last year. And it had risen to, um, I believe it was the mid-teens at the time. This was in June. And the company announced a convertible note offering. Um, of 300 million, which was later upsized to 400 million, and a 200 million stock offering, which was uh, offered at uh, 1484. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I think this would have been unheard of uh, for Intelsat to raise equity, but uh, you know, here they are now um, raising it at um, at, at, a, at a stock price uh, in in the mid-teens. Um, what the company did with those uh, over 600 million in proceeds uh, was to um, uh, buy back um, seven and three quarter 2021 uh, Lux notes uh, that were trading uh, below par. Um, what's, what I found was sort of interesting about this too is that they addressed the 2021 Lux notes. Um, and the reason why I think that was interesting is because they have 2020 notes. They have notes that maturing in 2020 that are at the more senior Jackson level. So you could see how the company's priorities have shifted while the capital markets, it seems, have become 
more favorable, more excited uh, about the company. These 2020 notes, by the way, um, are trading at par. So it's just um, interesting to see how uh, the mindset of the company and, and what do they need to address has changed over time with the increased uh, price of their bonds and um, of, of their equity. And, and lastly, earlier this month, Intelsat raised a little over a billion dollars of notes that mature in 2023, priced at nine and a half percent, and they used the proceeds of those to buy back uh, or to redeem um, 2022 notes uh, that were paying 12 and a half percent. And it was ultimately upsized. It was oversubscribed. Yeah, that's right. It started at a billion and then went up to a um, billion uh, one two five. Um, all right. So, what have operations been like? Yeah, you know that that's the funny part. So, while um, the company has been able to refinance all of these um, or push out some of these maturities, uh, raise new debt, raise new equity, um, the operations haven't been. Great, I guess you could say. Um, the uh, revenue has fallen four um, percent uh, in both the first and second quarters. Uh, this is before an accounting change that they put in. Uh, the uh, uh, backlog fell from seven point six billion down to seven point five billion in the last quarter, uh, and. One of the reasons that the company cites is because they have a very heavy renewal period uh, that, that came up this year. But um, the renewals that, that have come in, they have been able to to, to renew these contracts, but at uh, often lower pricing, uh, they say, and, um, and and actually haven't been able to renew all the contracts. So one bright spot of um, the, the business, uh, the company has said, is in the mobility um, space, which now makes up 12% of their total revenue. Uh, this has been supported by one of their uh, newer fleets, uh, the Epic fleet, which they're still launching um, satellites for. Uh, so the operations haven't been uh, great, or the, the core operations haven't haven't been great here and, and have continued sort of a, um, a, a little bit of a, a trend downward. Though later in the year and over the next few years, uh, Intelsat is launching um, seven uh, new satellites, four of which are going to replace um, existing ones, and um, three of them will be new. Uh, so you know, yeah, yeah. To say it again, they really haven't been uh, you know spectacular. So it's 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 surprising that they've been able to um, to raise all this debt. Uh, you know, I guess it shows that people are excited about um, the the spectrum and about uh, the process that's happening with the FCC. But also, Intelsat's been very creative over the years as well, um, allowing them to buy back debt um, and raise capital, even when their bond prices were um, far lower than where it is right now. And they've continued that creative financing um, to this day. So, you know, Chelsea, if you could explain. Yeah. So as you noted, um, they've been pretty creative with their capital structure. They've been um, using this basic kind of setup uh, that they started when they launched the issuance of the ICF notes in December 2016, and they closed that in January 2017. Um, they issue debt at intermediary holding companies ahead of Lux, um, but below Jackson. Um, so these are ICF and Envision. So those two holding companies are closer to the company's assets. So that makes it easier to issue debt there. Um, and it also helps to avoid covenant restrictions on issuing new debt at Lux. So that's why it's easier to issue debt there um, than it is at the Lux level. So those entities then use proceeds to buy the Lux notes at a discount 
And the ICF Envision debt is issued a lower yield than the Lux bonds that they're buying back. Um, and they leave those Lux notes outstanding. So they also get paid interest on those holdings. So they receive the interest payments from those Lux notes, which helps them pay interest on their own issuances. And having the Lux holdings also makes it easier for the company to refinance its Lux debt um, since they own some of it. For example, the latest deal exchanged $1.6 billion of 2021 Lux notes um, that ICF and Envision own for new 2026 Lux notes with a 13.5% coupon, which is higher than the 7 and 3 quarters coupon on the 2021 notes. So the company was able to push out its 2021 maturity, and ICF and Envision are collecting higher interest now um, at that level as well. Great. So we will see what they do next. Um, Chelsea, thank you. Uh, Of course, uh, we will uh, continue to monitor what happens at the FCC. Uh, As always, we will be um, listening to to the company's future quarters and um, see what they do next with their capital structure. Chelsea, thank you very much. Karen, back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lund. This has been The Week in Reorg.